You are listening to the Gable Media Continuing Education Podcast Feed, the most entertaining and convenient way for AEC professionals to get continuing education credits, including AIA-approved courses. As a Gable member, just listen and follow the link in the show notes to take a brief quiz and obtain your credit today. Enjoy. His father and uncle, who had an architectural practice, they did a lot of the houses in the central west end of St. Louis, they ended up somehow wandering down from Canada because there were a lot of Germans went to Canada to work for the Hudson Bay Company and then wandered down to different places in the United States. And the homeless did just that. And they ended up in Salem and got an engineering degree at the University of Mining. That then turned into an architectural practice. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I'm joined by Patrick McLaney, FAIA and former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. This is Build Smart. Patrick shares stories from his remarkable 50-year career at HOK, rising from junior designer to CEO of the company. With themes of leadership, finance, people, culture, and so much more, you'll find that there's a lesson in every episode. Welcome back to Build Smart. In our last episode, we spoke with Patrick about the motivation behind writing his book, designing a world-class architecture firm, and creating this podcast. He shared a bit of his introduction to the architecture profession, how he ended up at HOK, and what was unique about the firm. If you haven't yet listened to that episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to all the episodes in order to hear Patrick's full story and insights into how to design a world-class architecture firm. In today's episode, we pick up with Patrick on the origins of HOK and the person who started it all, founder George Helmuth. I'm excited to talk about George. Everybody in the firm that knew him called him Papa George, and he was really the father of the firm and a really colorful guy in his own right. His story is one of being shaped by growing up as the son of an architect And as the nephew of an architect, there were two architects in St. Louis, Missouri, where George is from, that practiced architecture at the turn of the 1900s. And their name was Helmuth and Helmuth. Typical firm of the times, it was the two brothers plus some draftsmen. Now, you might say, well, HOK began in St. Louis. That's an unlikely place for a great firm to begin. You know, why not New York or Los Angeles or someplace? And I think it's really because of this man. But St. Louis, in its own way, played a role in this. At the turn of the 1900s, St. Louis was the fifth largest city in the United States. And that growth was from two things. One was the westward expansion that took place after the Lewis and Clark expedition up the Missouri River. And two is the growth of the railroads. The first railroad bridge across the Mississippi was called the Eads Bridge, named for Captain James B. Eads. And it was built at the same time as the much more famous Brooklyn Bridge, but it was an innovation for its time. It was the first steel arch bridge constructed in the United States. And St. Louis also had a centennial, World's Fair, to celebrate the centennial of the Lewis and Clark Expedition in 1903. So St. Louis is an up-and-coming place, and the two brothers, Helmuth and Helmuth, that practiced there had a pretty standard practice. Uh, They did uh, work for the Catholic Church. They were both Catholics. They did uh, mansions for well-off St. Louis families. 
And their most famous building was the International Fur Exchange Building. You know, St. Louis was founded on the fur trade. St. Louis was founded as a fur trading post in 1764 and became a center for fur trading. In 1919, the International Fur Exchange Building was built for the Falk Fur Company to be the site for fur auctions. The Chicago School-style building was a seven-story brick commercial building located at 2 South 4th Street in St. Louis, Missouri. The interior featured imported Italian marble and granite, handcrafted millwork, crystal chandeliers, and the latest electric lighting technologies to highlight the sales floor. Furs were traded in the building on and off until 1956. The building was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1998. Today, it's part of the Drury Plaza Hotel, where three buildings, the International Fur Exchange Building, the Thomas Jefferson Building, and the American Zinc Building, were carefully renovated into one. So George Helmuth grew up in this family of two architects and always wanted to be an architect. And he was seared, as he put it, by the experience of watching his father and his uncle struggle to practice architecture. The two brothers, they were partners of convenience, which is the way many firms operate. Each brother wanted to sell and design his own work. And when one brother won a project, the other one had to help. They shared an office space and they shared some draftsmen. And uh, he watched his father and his uncle struggle with the firm. And he called it a roller coaster, up and down. One or the other brother would get a project. They would hire a few draftsmen to do the work. And about the time the project was finished, the draftsmen would be trained by the two brothers so they could be more useful and more helpful. And a more efficient operation could proceed going forward. But if they didn't have any more work, they laid the draftsmen off went back down to the two brothers. And George Helmuth was seared by this because when they got a new project, his father had money and they they lived a pretty good, decent middle-class life. When the project ran out, the money ran out and they weren't poor, but there were belt tightening experiences that were quite distressing to him. And that actually shaped a lot of his approach later on to how to design a successful architecture practice. So, Helmuth always wanted to be an architect, right? So why did he not end up with his father and his uncle? When he graduated, things didn't really go the way he imagined, did they? No. In fact, uh, he graduated from Washington University in St. Louis. And that's a university that plays a central role in the founding of the firm because all three founders went to this very small but very good private school. He graduated in 1932 in the country and St. Louis were in the depths of the Depression. And the Great Depression lasted from roughly 1930 to roughly the beginning of World War II. So it was a decade. And when he graduated in 1930, he expected his father and his uncle would take him on in their firm to be a junior partner of some kind. But he didn't. they didn't have any work. So he wrangled a job as a junior architect working for the city of St. Louis. What did he design? Comfort stations, park benches, and bus stops. And he spent seven years doing this. And every so often, he'd go ask his father and his uncle, can you take me on? Can you take me on? Finally, his father in 1938 said, George, no one in St. Louis knows how to practice architecture successfully. And that includes me. If you want to learn how, go to a big city, find a big office, and get them to take you on. 
where did he go from that point to learn how to become an architect? He moved to Detroit. And at, at that time, pre-World War II, Detroit was rivaling Chicago for dominance in the upper Midwest because there was a burgeoning auto industry in Detroit. And there he found a firm, Smith, Hinchman, and Grills. That's the forerunner of the Smith Group of today. And Smith, Hinchman, and Grills, SHG, was very busy doing auto assembly plants and uh, office buildings for the big three automakers. So he started there as a junior designer. And he said he was a pretty good junior designer, but they soon noticed that he was also naturally built for sales. He was always good around people, loved people, loved to tell stories, loved to connect to people and meet, meet people and make them his friends. So they invited him to join the SHG solicitation department. In those days, architects didn't really market themselves. It was deemed unseemly and unprofessional. So architects would sit by the phone and wait for the phone to ring, or they would wait for a letter to come in the mail inviting them to be considered for a project. But SHG and many other larger firms had people involved in the firm that actually actively looked for work, but it was sales work. It was calling on clients and saying, do you need some work done, some design work done? And Helmuth understood fairly quickly that SHG was a big firm with a lot of contacts in the auto industry and in Detroit, but they didn't have any real great design talent. So he persuaded the leaders of the firm to invite a new young design face to join SHG, and they recruited Minoru Yamasaki from New York City to Detroit. And Yamasaki, who was originally from Seattle, Japanese-American, came to work for SHG as a, as a designer and became fast friends with George Helmuth. So even though Helmuth was still just an employee, he had some really big ideas. So what did he do with those big ideas and how were they received? Yes, he, he did. Uh, as he worked in their solicitation department and called on clients, he began to think about how else can we organize this so that it's not the same roller coaster that he experienced with his father and his uncle. Because even though SHG was big, they were always in danger of running out of work, just like a small firm. So he began to formulate ideas and came up with four principles for what he called a depression-proof firm. And um, the four principles, he wrote them down in a 22-page, as he put it, single-space typewritten paper, no computers yet, and uh, presented it to the SHG leadership and asked them to adopt his strategy. Had they adopted it, no doubt he would have stayed on at SHG, probably become a partner, and, he'd, um, he, and the HOK story would not happen. The first one was that firms need to attract and then keep talented people. Talented people are the backbone of any successful firm. People are not to be, as he watched with his father and his uncle, trained and then let go because there's no work. The way to build a future in a firm is to keep those people, keep the best ones, and have them grow inside your firm and become very good at what they do and eventually become partners or replace you as a leader. So his strategy was built around attracting and keeping people. How do you do that? Well, this was a radical idea at the time, but full-time marketing. He said, you should always be looking for work. There should be somebody, a, a partner or a leader who is fully dedicated to this process. Unlike his father and his uncle, who both loved to design and did the marketing they had to do, 
just to get a job so they could have something to design. Helma said, well, no, actually the firm of the future needs to have somebody dedicated to marketing so that there's always work in the pipeline and we can keep these, these people. And that was a pretty radical idea back then for architects to be marketing at all, never mind having a full-time dedicated marketer. Yes, it was quite radical, and it was not looked on with great fondness by SHG or other firms at the time. He had to push pretty hard to get that to be adopted by anybody. It also sounds like George really connected talented people with full-time marketing, that they're linked together. One supports the other. Yes, and, and again, remember the touchstone, the, the foundation of his strategy is attracting and keeping people. And these other three principles are all about supporting that, keeping people. So full-time marketing was the second. The third principle was to diversify the work of the firm in every way possible. Don't For additional perspective on George Helmuth's principles, Patrick spoke with his nephew, Bill Helmuth the current chairman and CEO of HOK. His idea was have a diversity of building types. Don't just do one thing. Don't just do houses. Don't just do office buildings. Don't just do laboratories, but have a variety of projects because if one market is up, the other one will be down and it works like the pistons of an engine. What you really need to do is protect your best people. And you can't protect them if you can't give them a stable platform. And so this diversity of projects, first of all, from a designer, it's really interesting to have a diversity of projects. But from a business point of view, it's really terrific because it gives us the kind of stability that people and their families can count on. The next thing he said was you need to be geographically diverse. You know, in those days, he thought geographic diversity meant both Detroit and St. Louis where their largest project was. And so he thought, okay, two cities. He had no clue at that time what it would become. Offices in 24 cities and you know all of that other stuff. It's hard to imagine when you start these things what, what they become, but the idea was central to it. Geographic diversity and project type diversity. And if you look you know, right now uh, during COVID, that has served us extremely well because on that day, a year ago, primarily in the commercial office building market. You know, that just stopped. But we were doing hotels and airports and hospitals and laboratories and all of these other things, and they kept moving along. And so it's, it's sort of living proof of if you want to create this stable platform, and, and I've always said HOK at its best is this incredibly elegant platform that people can come to and they are only limited by their imagination. Use this platform as your basis, and then it's up to you and your imagination to achieve the next pieces from there. And then that's essentially how we've organized ourselves, and so far, so good. Diversity also meant service type diversity. Helmuth saw that even though most firms were pure architecture, that clients didn't always need an architect or they needed an architect plus other design service. So he began to think of diversifying the service offerings to include building engineering, landscape architecture, planning. Interior design wasn't really a separate discipline then, but uh, once the interior design was recognized as separate, well, HOK had to have interior design as well. And that diversification 
continued on actually until this present day. So diversity was a huge step forward in thinking that instead of just specializing in one project type, one building type, learn how to do everything. Then the fourth principle, which was again radical for its time, he had watched his father and his uncle argue over who won that last project and who got to design it. So his idea about avoiding that conflict between partners was to give each partner a separate responsibility. And uh, his idea of the ideal firm was to have three partners. One partner devoted strictly to marketing, bringing in the work. Another partner devoted strictly to design, designing everything the firm did or being responsible for designing it. And another firm, another partner rather, responsible for producing the work, getting the design work to the stage where it could be bid and built by a contractor. And he called that a troika. It's a Russian cart that's pulled by three horses. And so that was his idea to keep the partners basically from undercutting each other and competing with each other. And the other thing he said about the specialization of the partners was, if you do something like market or design and you do it full time all the time, you get pretty good at it. And over the years, you get very good at it if you apply yourself. And of course, if you have a staff of people that are helping you design or helping you produce, they get very good at it too. You may be wondering how Helmuth's principles of the depression-proof firm have stood the test of time. They've held up pretty well. I think the tougher part though, and the part that we're gonna have to deal with is many people want to open up an office in Timbuktu. Every architect in the world has wanted to open an office in Paris, but the French don't like Americans to be designing their buildings very much, so they always close them back up after that partner opens the office. But places like Denver that we don't currently have an office, it becomes very attractive. Various other cities in in the Midwest, in Charlotte, North Carolina, these different satellites become very attractive. And now that we can work remotely, people want to start offices in a lot of different places. Well, one of the things we've learned is it costs practically nothing to open an office, but to close an office starts at a million dollars and goes up from there very quickly. And so you have to be careful about your real estate footprint uh, in these different places. We're playing with the, the notion of if there are markets we want to get into, setting up some virtual offices. Now that we know that that can work, Uh, we might be able to expand things through the use of virtual offices and see if our clients will accept that notion. I think they will because they've been living it, but we'll see. It has the advantage of keeping people together in a location so that they can feed off of each other, but also be local and more local in more places because I do think we're going to see more diversity of population. I still think we're going to be at transportation centers. But for example, in New York, a lot of the big investment banks and so forth had just spent the last 10 years bringing everybody together in a central headquarters in New York. Now they're sending them all back out to Stanford and Westchester and and, all these, these different places because they realize that they can still communicate. So I think we're gonna see a little bit of that. And we are always a reflection of the people that we do work for. Specific to the concept of diversifying services, Bill added some insight into how HOK has implemented this principle in recent history. You know, HOK has always gone into 
different diversity of practice in a very gung-ho way. Several times it's been incredibly successful and several times we've gotten burned. Like when we decided we were smart enough to be a contractor, we very quickly learned that we were terrible at it. And so the key is not to avoid that stuff. The key is to try something with a reasonably good business plan. And if it works, feed it. And if it's not working, try something else. You know, and I don't think of ourselves as a business. I think of ourselves as a creative enterprise. And the dirty little secret is it's a much better business if you're a creative enterprise than if you think of yourself as a business because the value add you bring to your client base is so much greater. So how old was George when he came up with these principles? He was in his late 30s, still a young man. How did the leadership at SHG receive those ideas? Well, <laughs> Helmuth called his strategy, another way of describing it was like farming. Said, first you have to till the fields, then you have to plant the seeds, and then you have to tend the fields and keep the weeds out and so on. All You have to do all of that before you can harvest the results. So he said, if you're going to do this strategy and have it actually work, you need a four to five year timeline to get things all in order so that you've got a pipeline that actually works to keep these good people that you want to keep. Well, the SHG people were impatient. They <laughs> wanted a new job next week or next month. So they turned him down flat and said, well, George, that's nice, but we just want you to go call on these next couple of clients and see if you could sell some work. He quit. <laughs> he resigned. And then what happened next? Well, that's the next podcast. So before we wrap up with this episode, we want to revisit the lessons of this episode. So what were some of the takeaways from the story of George Helmuth? His youth growing up in a family of architects and watching them struggle with the work and then joining SHG in Detroit caused him to create these four principles. And those four principles continued to drive his life and his firm from that moment forward. He really believed in them. They are first the foundational principle. You have to attract and keep talented people. Don't just hire and fire. Two, you have to have full-time marketing to have a steady supply of work. Three, you have to diversify in every way possible. You have to know how to design everything in multiple geographies with multiple offices, and you need to work on diversifying your offerings so that you can offer all the design services, not just architecture. And finally, that the leadership of the firm needs to be specialized with a three-person leadership group or troika, one for marketing, one for design, and one for production. Those were his four principles, and SHG turned him down flat. To continue the story, come back next week for the next episode of Build Smart, where we will explore the origin story of HOK and Patrick highlights founders Gio Obata and George Kassebaum. One day he came to St. Louis and had lunch with Helmuth and said, George, I've got this really good idea. I think we ought to just close St. Louis up, have you move back to Detroit and you can market for me in Detroit. Well, Helmuth did not like that at all. What Yama really wanted was somebody to bring in signature projects for him to design. And uh, what Helmuth wanted was completely different. He said there's a good design opportunity in, in any building, every building, and diversity is, is our strength. 
So after that lunch, Helmuth went back to the HYL St. Louis office. He pulled Gio Obata and George Casabon aside and said, Gio, George, how would you like to be my partners in a new office, in a new firm? Thank you for listening. To read along and see illustrations and personal photos that accompany this series, get Patrick's book, Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm. I encourage you to go grab a copy today and follow along as we continue the story. It's available now at gablemedia.com slash buildsmartbook. This podcast is a Gable Media production and is produced by Demetrius Lynch Jr. Gable Media is the home of curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. You can listen in, subscribe, and find more content like this from our network partners at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media dot com.